Good morning. Let's begin class of prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to study. We ask that your spirit will be with us. Fill our hearts with your love. Give us discernment and wisdom and help us be effective in sharing this message with others. We pray in your holy name. Amen. I received this email uh, recently, uh, and I want to share it with you. I write this to you from the Netherlands. My wife and I watch your ministry every Friday, one day before Sabbath. I got to know you, you through my wife. I met my wife in the Netherlands in the summer of 2013. She is an American. We fell in love and married last year in Houston, Texas. For the first time in my life, I gave my whole heart to a woman and decided to drop myself into the unknown. When, <laughs> when, I, when I met my wife, I was an atheist. As a man of science, I could not believe in metaphysics. I considered people who believed in God as morons, who did not have enough education to understand the world, and those who believe in God were afraid of life. You have to understand, Dr. Jennings, I have written a book where I even advocate being an atheist. Uh, Meeting the love of your life changes a man. How could it be that at that moment in time in The Hague that we would meet and fall in love? Does coincidence exist? Question mark leap of faith? A couple of days after we met, we were walking in The Hague, and I am not quite sure, but religion became a topic. I said to her, religion is an opium of the people to stay stupid. At at that moment, I didn't know she was a Seventh-day Adventist. She responded with, well, I don't agree with you because I have felt that God exists. I started to get interested, not because I didn't know what is written in the Bible or anything else. No, I started to get interested because here she was, an intelligent lady who had an academic background that believed in God. After that, she went back to the U.S. and through modern technology, Skype, WhatsApp, uh, we kept in touch, and my love for her grew every day. She went to church, and because time because of time difference, I had to stay up a bit late, otherwise I wouldn't talk to her, and she told me every week about the topic of church. Well, to keep the story short, I got baptized in the church and got married with the love of my life. I did that at first because uh, the parents of my wife did not want her to marry a guy who wasn't a Seventh-day Adventist. <laughs> Okay, we're all laughing because we know now that you Yeah, okay. All right, I don't have to explain that at all. Okay. I did that because I loved her and there isn't anything I wouldn't do for her. Uh, since uh, summer last year, we watched your ministry in the Netherlands. My wife really respects you a lot. At first, I didn't like watching your ministry, to be honest. But after a while, I understood what Christianity is. Your words correspond, corresponded with my brain. I went from an atheist to a Seventh-day Adventist. For that, I am grateful. The process of how and why is too long to write. I could write a book about this. We keep watching you and perhaps we'll see this on YouTube one day. So, <laughs> Alrighty, so uh, the, we're doing lesson number six in the book of Luke. The title this week is Women in the Ministry of Jesus. And the memory text is from Galatians uh, chapter 3 verses 26 to 28 and it reads, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek There is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What does this text mean? God does not respect our persons. Okay. Meaning? It's not an arbitrary, biased, prejudiced, uh, subjective thing. It's an objective reality upon which we exist and live. Did you notice in the text that Paul broke this divisions down that, that are being done away with in three major types of division? Struck, struck me that there are three major types of division here that he is dealing with. The first, slave and free, are divisions caused by the choices of sinful human beings to act in selfishness. The second, Jew and Greek, are the divisions caused by sin affecting nature, the changes over time of genetic expression and language evolution. 
Just the natural consequence of sin causing division over time. And the third, male and female, are the divisions created by God into creation to start with, which were intended for mutual benefit, but which have been exploited because of sin. In the beginning there were two, but the two were to be one. This unity of the two, male and female, was broken by sin, but in Christ to be restored. So do you see there's three major divisions here? And I want to, if you think of those three divisions, division caused by selfishness in the heart, slave and free, division caused by biology and genetic entropy and things over time, and then created that way for mutual benefit, what kind of divisions do we see in society today and which category do they fall? Race. So race, racial division still. Okay. Now the actual division, the fact we have different races, is a product of biology, ge- uh, genetic, you know, genetic entropy, uh, evolution of language, and how language changes over time with separation and so forth. But how about the way we treat each other based on race? Is that a consequence of that, or is that a selfishness in the heart? Selfishness in the heart, yeah. Mm-hmm. What about religious division? The division we have because of religious differences, is that? Is that uh, from which category? From God's design, the way he built it? From a natural biological thing? Or from selfishness in the heart? Selfishness in the heart. Yeah. What about age division? Are we divided by age? Yeah. Part not in your neighborhood? <laughs> because they have an age criteria and they move in, so they've divided the community by age. <laughs> okay? Man made bi- biases of biological realities is the age division, right? The biological reality we age, but we make these divisions. How about political divisions? Do we have political divisions? In which category do they fall? Selfishness of the heart, yeah. How about national divisions? Divid, divided by nationality, national um, loyalty, like American or, or Russian or whatever. That, that's, again, this is, not, this is not biological ethnic because we have lots of ethnicity in America, don't we? This is nationality is different than ethnicity, isn't it? Mm-hmm. How about sexual identity division? Mixed. It's a mixed category. See, don't don't cookie cutter everything. It's a mixed category. You can have a sexual identity division based on purposeful choice or biological predisposition. People can make choices to go against their and both both ways. Heterosexuals can make choices to engage in homosexual activity. Homosexuals can make choices to engage in heterosexual activity. You can go both ways. What causes conflictual division? What's the root of the, the root cause of all conflictual division? Not the division in Eden where there was male and female and the two shall be one. There's division, but there's unity in that division. But conflictual division, what causes it? Fear and selfishness. That's right. Fear, which causes us to be self-centered and, and self-protective. That's right. We, we, and when we have this type of fear and selfishness operating in the heart instead of love and trust, we see others with differences as threatening. 
It frightens us. We become afraid of them. We don't know how to deal with them. And rather than seeing their differences and celebrate their differences and be thankful for their differences, we see them as competition, and we either want to own, control, exploit, or destroy those differences. That's what we want to do. When people don't fit into our mold, rather than re-examining our beliefs, because they're different than us, and examining whether we should re-examine how we see them, we all too often begin to find fault with the differences in others in some way that denigrates or devalues them. For instance, in 1851, Samuel A. Cartwright, a Louisiana surgeon and psychologist, published a report in the New Orleans Medical and Surgical Journal that on what was deemed to be a common disease among black people in the South. One of them was drepetomania, which was described as the disease of causing slaves to run away. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? There must be something mentally wrong with those people. They want to run away from slavery. (laughs) Or during the civil rights movement here in America in the 1950s, 60s, some doctors began diagnosing black Americans in the South who were advocating for civil rights with a subtype of schizophrenia, characterized as having a desire to advocate for their rights. Not to be outdone, several, after several racial killings, a group of black psychiatrists sought to classify extreme bigotry as mental disorder. Back to the issue of women in society. Just as an example of how, when things are different than us, instead of re-examining the way we view reality, we try to find fault with the other to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. Well, they're mentally ill. Those, those people are mentally ill. There's, there's certainly nothing wrong with slavery. So are women morally equal to men? Morally equal to men. Are they treated equal in societies around the world? Until the 20th century, the United States and England, both in in, in U.S. and English law, observed the system of coverture, whereby marriage, the husband and wife, are one person in law that is the very being or legal existence of the woman is suspended during marriage. She has no legal standing. She only is an extension of her husband now. U.S. women were not, this was, this was up until the 20th century. U.S. women were not legally defined as persons until 1875. So when the Adventist church was founded by a woman and some others, women were not legally defined as people in America then. French uh, married women obtained the right to work without their husband's permission in what year? 1965. In West Germany, women obtained the right to work without their husband's permission in 1977. West Germany. Not East Germany, West Germany. During the Franco era in Spain, a married woman required her husband's consent, called permissio marital, for employment ownership of property, and traveling away from home. This permission in order to go visit your family away from home, you couldn't go without your husband's permission, was abolished in what year? 1975. Women in parts of the world today continue to lose rights at marriage. For example, Yemeni marriage regulations state that the wife must obey her husband and must not leave the home without his permission. So if you move to Yemen today, you would be subject to the laws of that land, And so, ladies, husbands, if you go over there, your wife can't leave home without your permission. 
not much chance of that happening. <laughs> yes. In Iraq, the law allows husbands to legally punish their wives. In the Democratic Republic of Congo, the family code states that husband is the head of the household. The wife owes her obedience to her husband. A wife has to live with her husband wherever he chooses to live. And wives must have their husband's authorization to bring a case in court or to initiate other legal proceedings. That's today. In Afghanistan, a wife who leaves her marital home risks being imprisoned for running away. Today. Leaves her marital home. Yeah, I did, it didn't wow. define that. Yeah. Um, do you think women were treated better in Christ's day? <laughs> a common prayer amongst Jews during Christ's day was, Blessed you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe, who has not created me a woman. Now, as you hear this prayer, why do you think men prayed, thanks to God for not being created a woman? Was it because they recognized how hard the lives of women were, are, how unfair life of a woman is? Is this why they were thankful? Thank, thank you, God, I don't have to put up with all that. Why do you think that they didn't pray this? Or what does it mean that they didn't pray this? Blessed are you, Lord, our God, ruler of the universe, help me bless and improve the lives of women. That's a good prayer. <laughs> Why didn't they pray this? But but what's it tell you about the mindset? Think it through. These are religious people. These are people who believe in God. These are people wanting to follow God's will. They're wanting to fill God's purposes. So why are they not praying, God help me make the lives of women better? So, does it give you a clue of how they see God? Exactly what I yeah. They see him. They, he, they got his approval for that. They saw he was approving that. So maybe they thought the, the way women were being treated was God's will. Yeah. Might there be some um, carryover from the, the idea that Eve fell first and, and therefore used her wiles to seduce Adam into sin. Now, Paul talks about some of this. You know, he treat women differently. They're the weaker sex. Eve fell first. So there's, there's, there was still that and even today, there's still some of that stigma associated with that. But I don't think you can really get that from Paul if you read Paul in balance. You can only get that if you go with the belief before him, because Paul says, yes, um, treat uh, women like Christ treats the church, sacrificing yourself for her. Right. This isn't authoritarian dictatorship. This is self-sacrificial love and winning and leading in love, as how did Christ treat us when he came? And so if we take Paul in balance, he may say treat differently, but the way we treat is the way Christ treats us differently, which is not retaliatory, not coercive, not the ways of the world, not power over, but service-oriented. But when we come to it with the mindset of a dictator first, then we read Paul's writing selectively and come up with the, think, the conclusions that you're, you're suggesting. So I, I'm suggesting the reason they didn't, didn't pray, Lord, help me bless the lives of women, is because they had the view that this was God's design. This is what God wanted. This is how God works. See, they blamed God. Look at the Old Testament. They blamed God for everything. God was responsible. If it happened, it was God's will. This is still misconstrued today under a lot of people who focus on what they call the sovereignty of God. And they see the sovereignty of God through level four and below. Through the imposed law lens, God is imposing and causing outcomes. So people think that if a person dies in a car accident, God took them. Or what sin did they have in their life that God didn't protect them, at least? Makes God into a pagan God. 
If a person gets sick with a disease, God is punishing them. What sin is it that he's punishing them for? This is what they think. If a natural disaster happens, remember Katrina and the preachers that came out of the woodwork? God is punishing that city for all the wickedness and voodoo down there and paganism and hedonism. This is God's punishment on the city. The prophet Micaiah in 1 Kings 22, when he spoke to Ahab to give Ahab a warning not to go to war with Ramath Gilead, how did he tell him? What was the way he warned him? God has sent a lying spirit into the mouths of your prophets. This is how he warned him. He didn't say your prophets are lying. He said God has sent a lying spirit into the mouth of your prophets. Why did he have to speak to Ahab this way? What kind of God did Ahab worship? He's a Baal worshiper. He worshiped a dictator God who makes everything happen, who's sovereign, who's in control. So if it's this way, it must be the way God wants it. He's making it happen this way. Do we see examples of this today? Any examples you want to share of how we see this happening today? Well, when a child is born with some defect or issues, oh, God made them just like they are. Oh, thank you for this one. Uh, A few years ago, we had a political campaign for president, a vice presidential candidate from Alaska who has a child with Down syndrome. Y'all remember this? Sarah Palin? And she went on record multiple times saying that God wanted us to have this child with Down syndrome. It was God's will that we had a Down syndrome child. It's different of God giving you the strength and the, uh, the heart and how that, uh, any variation, personality, uh, all the rest can touch your life and, and, and create uh, possibly compassion that you wouldn't otherwise have, but he doesn't cause the disease. He can just... I, I say God makes good lemonade. He can take whatever the the situation that's brokenness and bring some good out. And see, and you're talking about a, a difference than what we're talking about. Rather than God causing something, God takes something that has been caused and can bring good out of it. That's a different question. But because good can be brought out of it, then people will look at that and say, well, then it was God's will that it happened in the first place. Like it was God's will that uh, Joseph's brother sell him into slavery because good came out of that. But Joseph said, you guys intended it for evil. God permitted it for good. But permission isn't the same thing as causation. Exactly. Yes. It goes back to the story of Christ with the blind man. Yes. You know. Who sinned that this man was more blind? And the answer? No. Neither. Yeah. Yeah. So where this can come from, it comes from, again, childish thinking. Uh, children, how do, the, how do children run when there's a debate? Brother and sister arguing over an issue. Who's right? Well, I know it's this way. No, it's not. It's that way. What do they eventually do? Mommy, who's right? Daddy, who's right? Teacher, who's right? R- referee, who, who, wh- were they safe or were they out? Uh, umpire, somebody. They're looking for an authority to make a ruling to tell them the answer. That's what they're looking for. And then they respond, well, that's not fair. <laughs> and if it's not the answer they want, exactly. yeah. Yeah, but well, the other one gloats. Right. Yeah, while well, the other one gloats. Yeah, this is, this is how many see uh, the Scripture. So they'll read in Scripture, Oh, God knit me together in my mother's womb. And they'll say, see, God's doing it. If you come down syndrome, he knitted it that way. So children born with spinal bifida and other types of congenital defects, God's having a bad knitting day. <laughs> you know, I mean, it just makes no sense, whatever. And if God wanted... Worse is God intended to knit poorly. Yes. Or, and therefore, a doctor who tries to fix a congenital heart defect is going against the divine will. Why should we try to fix those defects? God wanted it to be that way. What, what are we thinking? You see, this is, makes no sense at all. And, and which is more powerful? God's divine, sovereign power or a bottle of vodka? 
Which is more powerful? Well, that God. Well, then how come a woman who drinks a bottle of vodka a day gets a baby born with fetal alcohol syndrome? Why isn't God's sovereign power overruling that? God's sovereign power gives her the freedom to drink a bottle of vodka. Yes. But this is the point. People who think level four and below want to to make God responsible for everything the way it happens. His sovereign power is doing everything. No. What it means when he knit us together in our mother's womb is he knits us together through his divine laws and his sustenance of nature, the way he's designed things to operate, and the fact that he continues all the laws of physics and the laws of heredity and all the other things are sustained by his power. But under that umbrella, we have freedom. And it is up to us how we use our reproductive abilities. When a man rapes a woman and she gets pregnant, God is not creating new life. Yes. Wouldn't it be just working against himself if he caused it? But we see the life of Christ. He went around healing all those things. Yeah. Well, what's the point? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, some would say God caused it so he could then heal it and show how good he was. <laughs> I've heard this. I'm not making that up. So what about the treatment of, of women today? Are women treated as equals in the church today? Should we have women pastors? Female president of the local conference, union, division, or general conference? Does God discriminate based on gender? What is the true, reliable, the only true, reliable, valid point of discrimination of people in general. And when we generally, what is the true, only reliable, valid discriminator that we can rightly and should rightly use? There you go. She says, do they walk with God? Are they in harmony with God and his law of love, or are they living for self and the exploitation of others? That's really a reasonable demarcation, isn't it? Yeah, that's the only one. This is what Paul's saying with our memory text, that when we come to united with Christ, that all these other things we divide upon are irrelevant. We partake of the divine nature. We have new hearts and right spirits. Self is replaced with love. We come back into unity with God and each other. But selfishness in the heart causes damaging divisions, including divisions within the church, arguing on the basis, of, but yet argued on the basis of righteousness. I would submit that in many ways we are unqualified to even make that determination on whether someone is walking uh, in harmony with Christ's law Absolutely. or the light that they've been given. Oh, okay, okay. Thanks for qualifying that for me. <laughs> in many cases, that's right. That's right. <laughs> what? <laughs> yes, because when the Lord returns, when the Lord returns, how many groups will there be? Only two. Wheat and tares, sheep and goats, fruitful vine, withered vine, righteous, wicked, saved, lost, living and dead, Christ-like and Satan-like. Not Adventists and not Adventists. Amen. That is not the division. Don't tell the brethren that. So how did Christ treat women? The same way he treated men, with kindness, love, and respect. Truth, love, and freedom. As, as beings made in his image with their own individuality, their own identity, their own ability to reason and think? Are there quantifiable differences between men and women, aside from the fact that women can give birth and men can't? Yes. 
Are there other quantifiable differences? What other quantifiable differences? Verbal skills. Uh, this is a great one. Not only do they have verbal skill differences, the brain regions that uh, are responsible for verbal skills are larger in women than in men. This is often why women are more talkative <laughs> than men. <clears throat> they have larger regions for verbal communication. And men all have almost exclusive verbal language skills on the left side of the brain. Women have more dominant on the left, but they also have verbal skills on the right, which means they're usually a little bit more protected in their verbal recovery after a stroke than men. So women are physically smaller and have less muscle mass in general than men. And a little extra layer of fat. Yeah, and this is important because, uh, you know, there's this push for equality in the armed forces. I, I served eight years in the U.S. Army. I'm all about equality in jobs for which you have the requisite capacity and skill. But I'm a fairly good-sized guy. Now, while I was a military physician, I didn't actually have to worry about going into combat. I was behind the scenes. But if I, somebody my size was going into combat, do I want somebody my wife's size next to me that would have to carry me a half a mile or a mile back to the aid station if I get hit? Now, much as my wife loves me, and I know she would do all she could, she can't throw me over her shoulder and carry me a half mile. <laughs> she might try, try and drag me, but she would have trouble dragging me a half mile. I mean, you know, this is why I think there's appropriate discrimination in certain aspects of certain elements of service. Yes, way in the back. Uh, from an online listener, could the guidelines given in the New Testament regarding holding down women simply be a recognition of their mental state as a result of their abuse and being actually held down by society. You know, that's an interesting thing. I, I actually don't, I wouldn't go there and I would say no. I'd say what's happening in the New Testament is culturally their focus is on trying to spread the gospel message. And if you look at what the New Testament church is doing in regards to women, it's actually quite liberating compared to the culture around them. And Paul is wanting to make a distinction between what happens in a Christian church and what happens in a pagan fertility cult worship, which is what most of the what pagan pagan societies were. And when you went to a pagan cult, the women would have their hair out and, and flow, or actually the women would shave their heads. The, so the cult prostitutes, when you went into a cult, um, a temple, you would recognize who you could then take into the little bedchamber there to worship with because she would have her head shaved. And this is why Paul says women should have long hair and, and never have their head shaved because he didn't want the women in the church to uh, uh, represent that when you come to a Christian church, you are going to have sexual rights with, uh, with the women of the church. This is not what's happening. Additionally, the women in some of the cult uh, um, would be cult priestesses and they would make a lot of verbal noise and shout. And, make the, and so he's saying we don't want that to be a chaos in our, in our organization, so women should remain silent. So he's making a distinction between Christian practice and pagan practice. And this is what a lot of what's going on contextually and culturally, not so much male and female. I know this would be controversial, but if Christ considered the women equal to the men in all ways back then, why didn't he choose a female as a disciple just to prove to the people? I know how women were accepted back then, but just to prove to the people that he considered them as equal. Okay, and some argue that he did, that Mary Magdala, Martha... She's not mentioned. They're not mentioned as one of the 12. In the canon of Gospels that we recognize as the 66 books, but in some of the ex extra Gospels, they are. And so... But some will argue that the 66 that we have selected were selected by the patriarchal right. Catholic Church that was 
male-dominated and diminished women, and only men can be in the priesthood, and all whole things, if you look at the, the male-female subjugation in the Catholic system, that they're the ones who ultimately selected the 66 books, and so some argue that, in fact, Christ did elevate women and have them part of his um, support team. What do you think? Um, I think it's clear that, in fact, he did have them as part of his support team, uh, part of his inner circle, even. Uh, whether he counted them as apostles or disciples, um, what's a disciple? A disciple is a student who's learning from the master. And what was Mary doing at the feet of Jesus when Martha was complaining? And he says, Mary's chosen the better way, and she's sitting here learning at my feet, just as all my disciples and apostles are doing. And he took special time to educate and, 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 and teach her. And then he sent the woman at the well. He sent her out, and what did she? She was a missionary, went out to her community, brought all these people back. So, you know, he was using women at, as his representatives at that time in real life. So... Did he not functionally do it? Did I just give you some examples? And what could have been more important than the announcement of the resurrection? And the announcement of the resurrection, of course, Mary comes back and announces this. So, And he appears to her first and says, go tell your brother. So he, again, here's another person he's empowering to give this message. He could have appeared to anybody. He appeared to Mary. Go tell. So functionally, operationally, this is the difference between level four and below. Level four and below, even though it happens operationally, it doesn't count until a ruling authority declares it so. And if we don't have a declarative that God declared it, then it doesn't count, even though he did it. Yeah. Even historically in our own church, with the spirit of prophecy, the gift was first offered to a black man and a white man, and then it went to a woman. So if we keep on in these differences, do you know that every woman, every cell in a woman's body is different than that of a man's? They have, a, they have a, a, what's called a bar body. You know what a bar body is? See, a woman has two X chromosomes. And one, only one chromosome is needed to be functional. And so, you know, men have actually an XY chromosome being expressed. Woman has one less chromosome being expressed in her body than a man does. And that, X, that bar body, though, is randomly assigned by each individual cell. And so she gets one X chromosome from mom and one X chromosome from dad. And every individual cell in her body randomly decides whether they're going to express the one from mom or whether they're going to express the one from dad. This makes her a microchimer. Remember we talked about chimerism? Okay, where you have different cell lines, it's on, it's on a micro level because of this. And this is potentially a contributing reason why women have more autoimmune disease. Uh, if a woman has a father who is colorblind, uh, color sensitivity is on the X chromosome, she will then have randomly assigned in her retina, some of the retinal cells will be from mom, X chromosome, some will be from dad, and they've actually done laser testing on the uh, cone cells, and they can actually identify some of the cone cells in the woman's eye uh, are colorblind, even though she's not officially colorblind because she has other cone cells from mom that are expressing the, the gene properly. Her vision isn't quite as sharp in color had it been otherwise. If a woman is given birth, she and during the birthing process, some of the fetal cells uh, from her children will cross into her bloodstream. These are uh, fetal stem cells and will actually become part of her end organ tissues, differentiated end organ tissues. She'll have microscopic amounts of her own children's genetic line in her own DNA, in her, excuse me, her own uh, cellular expression, another potential reason why women might have more autoimmune disease than men do. Do you think that women were designed to uh, run and jog and lift heavy objects and carry buckets of water on their heads? I don't think that was in God's design. <laughs> you know, because in Eden, Eden they, they had telepathic powers, right? And they could just like think things around, and they could like probably fly and stuff. So, you, you know, I, I, I think that's probably true, that they weren't designed to be in all this manual labor that we do because of sin. Drive but neither were men. 
<laughs> because we weren't supposed to do well. Curse is the ground for your sake. You need all this work, okay? Because this was after sin. Um, math, uh, in, in the brains of men and women, there's a part of the brain called the inferior parietal lobule, which is the actual part of the brain that's significant for mathematics. It's typically larger in men, particularly on the left side, and this is why men generally are better at math than women. Uh, it, and it's just interestingly enough, Albert Einstein had a significantly enlarged um, inferior parietal lobule, which is involved with mathematics. Uh, but that's the left side. Uh, women, uh, men process information more efficiently on the left side of their brain than the right side. Women process information on both sides of their brain equally efficient, which makes them actually a little bit more creative in their thinking. Men are more linear. Women are more relational-oriented, more more um, uh, compassionate, more empathetic because they're being connected, and right side connects us with the world around us. Uh, and the right, the inferior parietal lobule on the right side is a little larger in the woman, and this makes her more aware of sensory information from her from her environment. Thus, she's more connected to hear the cries of her baby in the in in the house than the man is. Okay. Now, with this idea of women being more relationally oriented, more empathic, more more likely to uh, want to um, uh, resolve a problem empathically rather than confront and and overcome a problem, in other words, get into a fight and beat it down, do you see these differences in men and women coming out in the New Testament in the way women and men related to Christ? Who stayed behind at the cross and who ran away? The women stayed, the men ran. Because the men are more focused on the relationship. They don't want to lose them. The women are. The women are more focused on the relationship. The men are more focused on fight or flight. I need to save myself. Get away. <laughs> this is also a reaction to stress, the fight or flight mode. Do we see other differences? Nicodemus came at night where no one would see him. Mary brought the ointment in in the middle of a meeting where everybody was going to discover her. Those who tended the swine after Jesus performed this miracle to heal the man, these were men. They ran away to get the owners, who were men. And what did they say to Jesus? Please leave. Leave, get away. Linear, task-oriented, focused on profits. The woman, the woman at the well asked Jesus into her heart and went to the town and witnessed and brought a whole bunch of people back to meet him. There's a difference in how we respond and react. But are we bound by our biological differences? Or can men and women, regardless of their biological presets, still choose to either accept or reject Christ? Amen. Sunday's lesson. Yes. Also, so there are exceptions to the gender. Yes, this is a general thing. Thank you. And so there are men who are better verbally than others. There's and math and other things. So That's exactly right. It's exceptions. But this is a general rule. And in general, I didn't say this, but men, because of the, the larger inferior parietal lobule, where you have mathematics and so forth, are also, they, men and women process the movement of time, the movement in space, physical movement in space, and speed, how fast things are moving differently than women. And actually more accurately and more effectively, this is why race car drivers are almost never women, because they can't process the information effectively to succeed. Uh, a, uh, test pilots 
And, uh, and these types of skill sets are much better. Men are much better at it because of this. This is why wives should not criticize your husband when they're driving. Amen. <laughs> okay. And, hus- and husbands, be gracious to your wives because when they do criticize, recognize they thought you almost hit something because they're processing information differently than you and it looked much closer and much faster than it was in reality. <laughs> and so, and so, and, 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 and so I, I say to my wife, that's okay, I know it looked that way to you. I didn't mean to scare you, but we were really safe. We didn't even come close. Or is this something that's evolved because of different roles that have been kind of... Uh, designed that way originally, she asked, or is this evolved because of different experiences? I don't think that, that we've had enough time with automobiles and rapid speeds and things like that to evolve that different type of a skill set. But um, I, I, I don't think we have enough information to know if we were designed with space-time uh, relationships differently or if that is something that might have evolved over time. I don't know. So Sunday's lesson... Um, Women at the advent of Jesus talks about Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Anna in the, um, in the temple who recognized uh, Jesus. The, this is these faithful women who trusted God. What, what are the lessons we learn? What's the big lesson that you learn from these three women? First off, they were all useful in God's cause, yes? But how was that possible? There had to be something. This is what I want you to get. Were, they, were these three women in a culture, these three in some bubble of, of reality that valued women different than all the women around them? Or were they still in a culture that discriminated against women? Did they let that embitter them? Did they let that harden their hearts? Did they become resentful? Did they become feminist radicals picketing with signs out in the street? Or did they, even though it was wrong and how they were done wrong, they, they somehow developed a loving, gracious attitude like Christ himself when he was done wrong. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And they kept grace in their heart, love in their heart, even though they were being treated wrong by society around them. Thus, they were open to be useful in God's cause. Is there a lesson for us today? Another part of that lesson, though, is the subculture that was um, the, the group environment uh, that Christ created. So in that subculture, in that... Judaism you're talking? No, no. In, in the house, in the home, in the space where Christ was, okay. that they could flourish in that uh, compassionate, respectful, um, supportive environment. Um, in the home of Elizabeth, Mary, and Anna before Jesus' birth? Before Jesus' birth? Yes, the Spirit. She's talking about the, the Spirit of God. Oh, the Spirit of God was there. Right. Okay. All right. And so even though we walk out the door in the rest of, of society, there certainly was uh, greater hardship and all in, the, in their space. And so what allowed the Spirit of God, though, to work in those environments, it, was, it seems to me there had to be some interplay between how they were choosing to respond to the world around them. As us. Because it seems they could have closed their heart to the Spirit of God, rather, but they remained open. Yeah, so that's a, a very good point. Other thoughts about this? Do we have challenges today that we have to maybe be gracious, be forgiving, seek to open up? Lord, this was not fair what happened to me today, but I don't want to be bitter. Give me a gracious heart. Give me a forgiving heart. Help me see beyond this. Do we have that challenge today? I can tell you, I do. This morning. (laughs) (laughs) I think with Anna, she, even though was in an oppressive culture, she still had a reputation. So she still fulfilled her role, developed that reputation. She still fulfilled what she was called to do, even in an oppressive culture. Yep. Isn't that, isn't that impressive? Mm-hmm. 
what, what, is, what are God's weapons for preventing the sins of other people from infecting your heart? When people steal from you, beat you, criticize you, uh, ruin your reputation, tell lies about you in the community, do you ab- objectively, factually, unequivocally wrong? What are the weapons you have at your disposal to prevent you from having your heart embittered and heartened? Christ in you. Love, forgiveness. The natural law. Recognizing that the brokenness of this earth comes out in so many different ways, but the value of the individual is not determined by us. The value of the individual, no matter what their broken state, is determined by God of his creation and loving them. And so even though their actions are extremely broken and sinful and selfish, the, the value of the individual is not. And the other part is nothing around us or we're going to take to heaven. And so uh, God's got a better place. Um, and it's not his, he's not the one creating the brokenness. He's the one creating the healing. So, so the, these are philosophical. How do we put it into real, real application moment? This is right. You're, you're, no, there's not, I hadn't heard anything wrong here. I'm just trying to say, how do we get down to that person who's struggling with this to make it applicable? And what I hear you saying, if I can rephrase it, is you have to love that person. You have to care about that person. You have to want what's good for that person. So you can connect to that if, if the person who's done you wrong, maybe who just stole from you, is your teenage son who has got a drug problem. And what's your primary concern? Punishing him or getting him treatment and getting him restored? You see? And so when your heart remains for the person rather than for self, how dare you do me this way? You had no right to treat me this way. See, when we focus on self, then we get outraged. We focus on the compassion and concern for others. Hey, how dare you treat yourself this way? Don't you realize what you just did? You seared your conscience. You warmed your character. Those drugs you're taking are destroying your brain cells. I can't, it's tearing me up to see this happen to you. You have a different focus, isn't it? And then, so love for them. And the other one was said here, forgiveness. The, act, the, the, the choice to forgive means I'm not going to seek to make you pay. I'm not going to seek vengeance against you. I, I'm not going to hold it against you. And, and what enables us to do that is what Russell said, is seeing reality under design law. When you see reality under design law, you don't have to be mad at the smoker for smoking cigarettes. You don't have to be mad at the adulterer for committing adultery, because while somebody commits adultery against you, they can break your heart because of the broken trust, but your conscience remains clear. Their conscience is seared. Their character is being warped. Uh, They're having all types of guilt and shame that you don't have to deal with, you see? And when you understand how reality works, then you can feel compassion, feel so sorry for what you've done to you. Okay, right here. Well, I think it's just like Russell was saying, continually keeping yourself in touch with reality. It's not about you. If that person steals from you or cheats on you or whatever, it's not about you. It's about this controversy that we're caught up in. So instead of making ourselves the center of the universe, we need to make the controversy the center of the universe. There you go. Yeah, well, well said. And the choice to forgive is not based on whether they're open to receive it. The choice to forgive is simply us choosing... So when you forgive somebody in your heart, who gets changed by that act? Yes, the other person does not get changed. You do, yes. The one time we see, or two times we see Christ mad was whenever someone was making God out to be something he wasn't. In in, in a particular way that obstructed people from experiencing grace, peace, love from God. Right. Yeah. So, so, So even the critical comments that he made and the destructive elements that he had 
were done in love. To destroy lies about God. Right. Yeah, good set. Well said. All right. So Monday's lesson points out that in Christ healing, in Christ healing of people, compassion was more important than ceremony. That's exact. So this is because why did this? Why was compassion more important than ceremony? Because Jesus was operating at level six and seven. He understood the reality that life is built to operate a certain way in harmony with God and his design. Men are, uh, human beings are out of harmony with that. They're dying. They're terminal. He wants to restore and heal. A ritual doesn't do that. It can teach an object lesson, but you actually have to have an effectual change in the person. So he is, he is d- focused on healing compassion rather than keeping a ritual. And we see this through his ministry. I'm going to take you through some examples. In the Sermon on the Mount, he contrasted behavior, acts, deeds, from heart motives. You say if you commit adultery, behavior, you commit sin. I say if you lust in your heart. You say if you commit murder, bad deed, you commit sin. I say if you hate in your heart. See, he's trying to say it's not about the specific deed, it's about the motive of the heart. And you can murder somebody in your mind without ever touching them. And you're just as damaged by that. Uh, He challenged their level two thinking. Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth in the Sermon on the Mount. You say, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. Repay vengeance with meanness with meanness and vengeance with vengeance. I say, turn the other cheek. If somebody takes your coat, give them your shirt. They'd have you carry a burden a mile, carry it too. He's saying, live in love. Get in harmony with how life is designed. Give. Because that's what the Father does to you. He tells them there is no merit in their legal fasting to get righteousness points and gold stars by their weekly Sabbath account mechanism. He wanted them to do the fasting of self-denial that actually blessed other people to give to the needy. And that stores up treasure in heaven. He wanted them to understand that it's the heart, the character, that determines what kind of fruit the tree produces. And the behaviors will ultimately, over time, reveal what's in the heart. In the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. He said in Matthew 5, thus in Matthew 5, 17 to 20, that our righteousness must be more than rule-keeping of the Pharisees. I'm going to share that with you from the remedy, Matthew 5, 17 through 20. And don't think that I've come to destroy what the Old Testament Torah and prophets taught about God and his methods. I've not come to destroy them, but to fulfill them. Here's the simple truth. Heaven and earth would disappear even if the slightest... If, excuse me. Heaven and earth would disappear if even the slightest change to God's design protocol for life, what you call his law, were made. I am not here to destroy the law, but to accomplish everything it requires. Anyone who violates God's design, law, and teaches others to do so is out of harmony with heaven. But anyone who practices God's methods, law, and teaches others to do so is in harmony with the kingdom of heaven. I tell you plainly, if your characters are not renewed with righteousness, surpassing that of the Pharisees and lawyers, it simply won't be possible for you to enter the heavenly kingdom of love. Thoughts about that? This is through design law. Do you see how I described this? It's just the way things are. I can't change even the smallest aspect of the construction protocols for reality because if I do, reality collapses. I can't change the law. This is how things are built. This is God's character. This is how things work. But when you have an arbitrary system of rules and that's how they saw it, you're changing all the laws. No, I'm not. You can't do it. I'm not coming to change them. Last week's lesson, and Wednesday's lesson of last week, it points out how the Pharisees were criticizing Christ's disciples for picking heads of grain on the Sabbath. 
At what level were the Pharisees operating? Level four, probably, the rules. You have a rule and you're breaking the rule. They saw religion as rule-keeping, obeying the law. At what level was Christ operating? Design law, level six, seven. Fulfilling God's purpose and operating in harmony with God's design. Thus, it is be- thus, it was better to provide what was necessary for human health and welfare than to keep a rule which actually would have resulted in damaging the spirit temple. And do you remember the example he gave them? As he responded to them as their criticism, he gave them an example from the Old Testament, David, and the showbread. And you think about it, he said, How is that? David, he goes into the temple, he takes the showbread, gives it to his men, they eat it. This is only legal for the priest to do. But David didn't sin. How come? How do you understand that? If you're level four and below, then he's breaking the law. He's breaking the rules. This is bad. He needs to be punished. Why did he not need to be punished? And somebody explain to me, why was that actually not sin for him to do that? Because he understood it was a ritual. A ritual? Okay. Can we, can we make it even more concretely understood? I agree with you. The bread was for, to maintain life. It was from God to bring life to those who ate it. What did the temple system represent? Jesus said, in three days I, I, you, will, you will destroy this temple, and in three days raise it up again. In the Old Testament system, the blood of the sacrificial animal went all through the building to various places. Jesus said in John 6, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, where is he applying it? Into us. Know ye not that ye are a temple of God and the Spirit dwells in you? In the Old Testament system, the law was kept in the heart of the system in the box. In the New Testament covenant, I will write my law where? In your heart and mind. This old theater, it's just a theater. It's a, it's a drama. It's a stage play with a neat stage, cool costumes, neat props, and a script to act out the reality of healing the spirit temple. They would want to keep to the script even if it destroys the spirit temple. It's like those health people. I'm going to keep this health message even if it kills me. You've heard this? I'm going to eat these healthy, healthy foods even if I die. What? I've seen this. People doing irrational stuff, wanting to be obedient to the law, the health message, the writings of Sister White, even though they're getting worse and worse and unhealthier and they won't take something that would actually cure them. Because they're trying to keep the law rather than understanding that all this stuff, this symbolic stuff, is pointing to a larger reality. Take the bread. David went in and he was actually applying the bread to the real temple. The temple where the spirit dwells. That's why it was no sin. Story told back when Ellen White was alive. You know, she wrote about never taking drug medications because they're poisons and toxins. And a uh, missionary from the Adventist church was in the uh, Southeast Asia and the uh, son got malaria, and um, the doctors wanted to give the boy quinine, and he wouldn't allow it because of the writings of Ellen White, and the boy died. And he came back and had an interview with Ellen White and said, would I have sinned to give the boy quinine when they knew no other way to save his life? But I didn't because I was following the testimonies. And her answer was, of course you wouldn't have sinned. You do the best we can with the knowledge we have. See, Ellen White was not this level four and below thinker. She was giving guidelines and instructions. And of course, when she said no drug medications, the medical students at Loma Linda wrote and asked, what do you mean by drug medications? The, the stuff we doctors prescribe, like mercury, strychnine, arsenic, um, laudanum. Are these the medicines you're talking about that we shouldn't give because they're poisons? 
And she wrote back, yes, these are, these are poisons. Don't put them in your body. Well, how many would like to go to a doctor and get mercury, strychnine, and arsenic? Okay? She was absolutely right. But then what happens is people who still love a form below, who don't want to reason, don't want to think, don't want to understand how things are designed and function, they just want a, a, a ruling authority to declare still today, today in the 21st century, 20, 21st century, yes, okay. <laughs> 21st, because yeah, we had that change. I was about to say the 20th century, but we're in the 21st century. In the, today, still, there are people in our church who won't take medications. There are other religious groups outside our church who won't allow their kids to get antibiotics if they've got, if they've got uh, meningitis because, you know, we're only supposed to pray and have faith. Because they're looking for a ruling authority to tell them. This is a misunderstanding of God's sovereignty. His sovereignty. He is sovereign. And Paul in Romans 9 talks about, and, this, and it's so twisted backwards. If you look, read the message of Romans, Paul comes along because the Jews were mad. The Jews are upset. We have been, we've, we were the ones chosen. We're the Abraham's descendants. We've had the, the feast days. We've got all this stuff. Salvation is for us. It isn't fair that these Gentiles are coming in. How dare the Lord, after all that we've been put up with, after all that we've gone through, after all the work we've done, we've got the Sabbath, we've got the, we've done all this. How dare the Lord bring these Gentiles in? And Paul's writing to them in Romans 8 and 9 and tells them, the Lord has mercy on who the Lord has to have mercy. And the Lord is gracious to who he wants to have gracious. Who are you to question the Lord's sovereignty? And then he gives the examples of Esau and Jacob. It wasn't dependent on genetics because Esau was older. Jacob was younger. It was the Lord's will being acted out. That's why Jacob is the one through, not through Esau. The Lord chooses the one he wants to choose. The Lord hardens who he wants to harden is what he's saying here. And, and, and so some people look at that today and say, see, it doesn't matter your choice. God is arbitrary. He picks who he wants. He's sovereign, and it's God's sovereignty. He selects some for salvation and some for damnation. You don't have a choice. He's in charge. And they take the argument of Paul and turn it exactly 180 degrees backwards to make it say the exact opposite of what he's saying. God is sovereign, and his ways are to operate sovereignly in harmony with his design and his character. And his design, his character is truth, love, and freedom. And he presents truth and love to all human beings and freely offers salvation to all. Thus, he sovereignly gives this remedy to all people, regardless of race and gender. And who are you to question his right to do so? But instead, we turn it around and make it more exclusive that he chooses some and he excludes others. And today, I actually had criticism uh, recently from somebody who... Um, Somebody suggested they check out the, the remedy and they read my Romans 9 and they said, no way, uh-uh, he's undermining God's sovereignty. Because they see God as sovereignly making Pharaoh heart hard, hard and God sovereignly choosing this and, and choosing Jacob for salvation and Esau for damnation. That's not what he was chosen for. Jacob was chosen for a purpose to be the um, line through which the Messiah would come. We have no knowledge that Esau's lost. He just wasn't chosen to be the progenitor of Christ. It was mission he was chosen for. Not it was Salvation is not being spoken of here in, in that particular example. And then to clarify the hardening of the heart, the individual choice versus it being God's imposition. And God hardens. How do we understand those texts? And if you read the Old Testament, you'll find three descriptions. Pharaoh's heart was hardened, neutral. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. All three are in the, in the Bible. And so how did God harden? Well, the Bible says that, that you know, Jesus stands at the door of your heart and knocks, knocking with what, a fist or with truth? truth? The Holy Spirit presents truth to our minds in a way we can comprehend and we get a conviction. And then we are left free to decide. Embrace the truth, accept, reform, repent, or reject the truth. 
That's our choice. What happens in the heart of a person when truth is being rejected? What happens to their heart? Softens or hardens? It hardens. So Pharaoh's heart was hardened. True. God's role in this, no ancient ruler had more truth presented to them by God in miraculous ways than Pharaoh. God came to him over and over. Every one of those plagues was a revelation that his false gods were not gods. And every time Pharaoh gets convicted of it, he repents briefly, and then after the plague is lifted, he hardens his heart and he chooses to go back to the old way of thinking. And so Pharaoh hardened his own heart by his voluntary choice, but his heart would never have been as hard as it gotten had God never given him the truth to make a decision upon. So it was not God overriding his will, it was God presenting truth over and over again, and Pharaoh kept rejecting it over and over again. And so we see this beautiful balance under the umbrella of freedom and God's sovereignty. God is not causing it, but he's creating the opportunity for either repentance or alienation and hardening. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you are a God of truth, love, and freedom, and that you do present truth. And we ask that you will bring your Holy Spirit into our hearts and minds, convict us and give us insight and wisdom and soften our hearts that we will respond positively and choose to embrace the truth, to love the truth, to pull it into our hearts, apply it to our, our minds and our lives, that we will become ever more sensitive to it and we will not choose to shut you out, Lord. And then we pray that as we go forth from here this week, this month, uh, in our local community and abroad, that you will give us wisdom and love in our hearts for others and ability to share this message, that, that the world will be freed and you will come soon, we pray in your holy name. Amen.